Hello and welcome to this week's podcast on Daily Remedy. Today we're going to discuss outcomes bias. An interesting term that has become more popular in recent years as behavioral economics have become more pervasive in the mainstream ethos. But a concept most people really don't understand in healthcare, which is a shame given how influential it is in the field of healthcare and in individual personalized medicine. Before we delve into the topic, let's begin with an anecdote. A tale of two patients, if you will. One, a 53-year-old diabetic male, Caucasian, who has a very stressful professional career, works anywhere from 10 to 14 hours a day, always on the move, always traveling, just stressed like you wouldn't even believe. And let's take another patient, a 47-year-old diabetic female, Hispanic, who struggles to make ends meet, often has to rely on government assistance, and really can't afford the food that she needs to maintain a diabetic diet. Well, the one commonality in both of these scenarios is that both patients are diabetic, but really they don't have much in common after that. One is a professional, a male, who endures a significant amount of stress. One is a female, Hispanic, who while enduring financial stress, is not really a stress of her own making. It's a stress that's more existential. The stress of not knowing if she will be able to meet her needs financially is a difference there because one is self-induced and one is induced upon you. Now, both of these patients go to their primary care physician and both of them get the regular blood work, the regular checkup, as all patients should, and it's found that their hemoglobin A1c, which is a general marker for their overall blood sugar, it's like an average. An average of their blood sugar is 6.8. So that means they're the same, right? Well, no. As I alluded to in the analogy, they're very different. And just because they have the same lab work, the same data point, it does not mean that they should be treated the same. They are very different patients who have very different needs to address their overlying diabetic health. And just by looking at them through one lab value, one data point, the 6.8 hemoglobin A1c, they are then treated the same. They're given the same medication, told to provide the same type of follow-up, told the same generic platitudes about maintaining a diabetic diet, and then they're told to return in about three to six months. That's the typical experience for an average diabetic patient in the United States. Heavily reliant on the outcome, heavily reliant on one data point, and using that one data point to then determine the subsequent course of care. But, as I alluded to earlier, simply telling somebody to take a medication, let's say metformin, which is typically the first medication any diabetic is prescribed after they're diagnosed. So let's say they're both told to take metformin, which is a generic medication, not the most expensive in the world. But then they're told to maintain a diabetic diet. For the 53-year-old diabetic male, 
that may not be an issue. He's a professional, presumably has income that can support himself, but he has a lot of stress. And stress is an inflammatory marker that can raise blood sugar. Mm-hmm. The diet may not be as effective as it would be for the 47 year old diabetic female, Hispanic, who has trouble making ends meet. But on the other side, the person whom the diet would have a greater effect can't afford the diet. So you're telling the 47 year old diabetic female, to have a diabetic diet that you know she can't afford. Or possibly you don't know, but you should know because the financial determinants of health are Mm -hmm. very much a factor in her overall quality of health and her overall diabetic compliance. Mm -hmm. This is essentially an introduction to how outcome bias affects healthcare and why we seem to keep limiting our ability to care for patients in ways that really matter for patients. The outcome is the same, but the risk factors are not. For the 53-year-old diabetic male, the risk factor is stress and the stress raising the blood sugar. For the 47-year-old diabetic female, the risk factor is the inability to afford a diabetic diet. Now, all other things being considered equal, they both take their medications as they should. They both follow up with their physicians as they should. The difference in the risk factors should incorporate how that 6.8 hemoglobin A1C is perceived, but it's not. Instead, that data point, that outcome is seen in isolation. And that is the problem that it is seen in isolation. That's a key. And now let me kind of do the generic thing at this point and reiterate the definition of outcome bias. But I do that for a reason. Now, the definition of outcome bias, as defined by behavioral economics, such as Daniel Kahneman and others, although there's variations on the definition, this is the most generally accepted definition. A decision based on outcomes of previous events without giving any regard to how those past events impacted that decision. That's the key thing here. It's not a distortion. It's a blatant disregard of the past events. Distortions are other forms of biases that we don't need to get into at this point. I'm simply talking about disregarding the events that led to a particular decision, a particular outcome. That is in and of itself a bias. Most people don't recognize that as a bias. Most people, when you talk to them about bias, they would say, well, you're thinking a certain way or you're distorted in how you're perceiving reality. No. A bias can also mean the inability to recognize what should be recognized, disregarding key facts. That is outcome bias. And that is why it is so pervasive in healthcare, yet so often ignored because we ourselves in healthcare are not able to recognize what a bias is. A bias doesn't have to be a distortion. It can be a willful disregard of key facts that should be taken into account. So why does that matter? Well, it matters because we need to treat the whole 
patient. If you talk to any medical legal expert, they'll say the patient is the individual. The patient is not the pancreas. The patient is not an individual organ. The patient is not a disease. The patient is the whole individual. So if you look at diabetes and diabetic complications, you have to look at the whole individual. That includes the decisions that impact the diseases. So that 6.8 hemoglobin A1c for those two patients is an incomplete picture of the diabetic care the patients require. That is why we have to incorporate decisions and the perceptions patients hold when we're treating patients. We need a more inclusive understanding of patient care, not just in terms of mental health, which seems to be getting most of the headlines these days, but for all of health. Because all the decisions impact all medical conditions and all therapy and therapeutic interventions. Now, we've tried something like this before. It's probably about 10 years ago when economist, again, Richard Taylor, came up with this concept of nudges. As an aside, it's pretty interesting how economists seem to have such influence on healthcare and largely drive a lot of the trends in healthcare. Uh, that's something I hope, as you're listening to this, you start to take note of. Now, back to Richard Taylor. Nudges. About 10 years ago, he came up with a book, which is uh, really a culmination of decades of work leading the front of behavioral economics and really finding the most simple, practical application of behavioral economics, uh, which he then dubbed nudges. Let me give you an example of that. When you're driving your car and you don't put on your seatbelt, you're going to hear a beep. That ding, ding. That's a nudge. That is telling you that you need to put on your seatbelt. It's reminding you that wearing a seatbelt is for your own safety and it's the law. It's a nudge. The problem is, however... Many nudges can turn into nuisances if the nudges are not properly calibrated. Now, let's go back to that seatbelt example. In the 1940s, 50s, when seatbelts first became very popular, Henry Ford, a Ford and Company, the original pop star entrepreneur, had an idea that he would launch a mass campaign throughout the country telling people to wear their seatbelts. He presented this paternalistic, military-like demeanor, went on all the broadcasting mediums, television, radio, what have you, and told the people that it's important to wear their seatbelts. Well, that nudge quickly became a nuisance because the public, in hearing Henry Ford speak to them in such a manner, revolted, rebelled. Well, not overtly, but implicitly. And that's why even today, there is this perception that wearing seatbelts are not cool. A perception that began in response to Henry Ford's attempt to educate the public about wearing seatbelts. That is a prime example of a nudge becoming a nuisance if it's not properly calibrated for how the person receiving that nudge would perceive it. Now, let's apply that into the healthcare realm. Well, 
as is typical, some corporate type at some healthcare conglomerate read the book on behavioral economics, thought nudges would be a great idea to apply into healthcare, and then rolled out all the bells and whistles to implement a nudge type system into their given healthcare system. Some nudges started out simple enough, a nudge to remind physicians to check for patient allergies, a nudge to remind physicians that they should order screening exams, a mammogram, a bone density screening for patients of a certain age. Well, as I am alluded to in the seatbelt example, those nudges quickly became nuisances and were largely ignored. Physicians, when given those nudges, would automatically ignore or default to ignoring those nudges without even reading what those nudges were. So as a result, you had a physician being inundated with these nudges serving as glorified reminders in which the physician simply said, ignore and moved on. Now, that's not really an effective nudge. It may not be an overt nuisance causing a counterreaction, but ignoring is as much a counterreaction as it is not wanting to wear a seatbelt, at least when it comes to patient care. Now, why does this apply to modern medicine and modern patient care? Well, because nudges are an attempt to influence decision-making in real time to help improve patient outcomes. Now, this is where the correlation all comes in and where it all neatly ties in together. The decision in real time influences the outcome. Behavioral economics have proven that. Implementing nudges seems to indicate healthcare accepts this as a viable option. But the reason why it hasn't worked is because we're not taking into account what we need to nudge. We should not nudge a specific action in healthcare. Rather, we should nudge a specific thought, a perception. Instead of telling a physician, hey, order a mammogram, send a reminder saying, hey, did you talk to your patient about screening exams today? Or, hey, would you be able to budget a few minutes of your time to talk to your patients about the importance of screening exams? Now, all of a sudden, it's not an individual action. It's a more generalized ask that would influence how the physician would approach the patient. So nudges as perceptions or targeting specific thoughts or beliefs are more effective ways to influence patient behavior and physician behavior, and as a result, healthcare behavior overall, because you're focusing on the opportunity cost of attention. That's a big word here, and let's break that down. Opportunity cost of attention implies that attention is never something in isolation. It's always a choice. You choose to pay attention to one thing and choose not to pay attention to another thing. Just like if you have a dollar and you want to spend it on fast food or you want to save it. You can't do both with that one dollar, so you have to choose. Each has its own opportunity cost. The same thing with perceptions as nudges. You have an opportunity cost of how to allocate the attention of the person you want to influence their attention of. 
So you have to then think, what's the best way to influence the opportunity cost of attention? Now, instead of looking at outcomes, you're looking now at decisions in isolation. But instead, you look at decisions in this totality. You look at all the decisions, all the thoughts that can lead to a particular action, a particular decision, and you nudge the thoughts and perceptions that emphasize, that give attention to the perceptions that are needed to optimize patient outcomes overall. As a result, you're not looking at data in isolation, outcomes in isolation, or simply targeting one decision alone. You're looking at all the decisions targeting one decision relative to data, like a ratio, decisions to data, or more broadly, perceptions to outcome. Now, when you look at healthcare as a ratio, as a balance, you start to see it more as a series of decisions made over time that can help improve patient outcomes depending on how those decisions trend. Ratios, as we all learned in elementary and high school mathematics, is a trend. So they can trend upward with improved outcomes, or they can trend downward with worsening outcomes. But they always trend, and that's key. Because when you go back to the example of the two patients, the 53-year-old diabetic male and the 47-year-old diabetic female, you'll start to see that the decisions for the male are different than the decisions for the female, though they both center around the condition of diabetes. For the male, it's about controlling stress, identifying glycemic or sugar spikes that can form as a result of prolonged stress or acute stress events. For the 47-year-old diabetic female, it's about budgeting to eat foods in a certain way that allow her to maintain a diabetic diet or as close to a diabetic diet as financially allowable. These are all decisions that are made sequentially in a host of all other decisions around it, never in isolation. And that's key here because in healthcare, it's better to appreciate the thoughts and decisions that go into each action Because those actions in aggregate determine the outcomes. Now, if we just focus on the outcome, that's a bias in and of itself. If we focus on just one action that leads to one outcome, that's an incomplete picture and can easily become a nuisance as much as a nudge. But if you focus on all the decisions, all the perceptions that go into the series of actions... We have a more comprehensive understanding of how patients develop the healthcare outcomes that they present with. And that shift in perception will unlock a significant barrier in improving patient outcomes and may, more than any technology, more than any therapeutic, be the deciding factor in truly improving healthcare as a whole. For all of us. Talk to you guys next time.